0: Well, welcome everybody to Stars, Cells, and God. This is a podcast where we explore the scientific case for the Christian faith. Uh, my name is Fuz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I also work for the organization Reasons to Believe, which is the organization that is sponsoring this particular podcast. So if you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, please visit our website, www.reasons.org, or you can also Uh, follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then finally, if you are watching this uh, program on YouTube, please go ahead and subscribe to the Reasons to Believe channel, and then also make sure you set a reminder so that you are alerted to when new episodes of this program and other programs appear on our channel. Uh, I'm joined today by Uh, Dr. Jeff Zwerink, a friend of mine and colleague here at Reasons to Believe. Uh, Jeff is an astrophysicist and uh, a senior scholar at Reasons to Believe. And both Jeff and I are going to be talking about new discoveries that, again, uh, give credibility to the Christian faith, scientific credibility to Christianity. And uh, both Jeff and I are going to be talking about discoveries that involve biochemistry. So uh, we're going to be in the molecular realm uh, today. Uh, Jeff is going to be talking about a protein called kinesin and uh, some pretty interesting new insights into that protein. And I'm going to be talking about the process of how proteins are imported into the cell. And so uh, we're going to be, uh, again, in the realm of biochemistry today. So without any further delay, uh, Jeff, why don't you uh, take over and and tell us about the discovery you want to share?
1: Yeah, well, this is a discovery uh, you know, about kinesin, uh, kinesin 1 is the particular name of the molecule. And uh, you know, there, I, I know just enough biochemistry to understand what we're talking about. Uh, But really, this is talking about the physics of how it moves. And, uh, you know, I remember in my biology days, uh, you know, you study biology and wherever you did in high school. And, you know, there's the organelles and, you know, you you remember, memorize the structure of the various things. But I I just know in the the number of years since I looked into that uh, in high school, it's like there's just been a proliferation of what we know actually goes on inside the cell. And there are these animations and dynamics, you know, there are tubes that extend and there are highways that molecules move along and they move these loads this place and that place and they absorb through and just understanding the cell walls. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to, I, I, I'm not commenting on any of that except that, as people have looked at one of these particular molecules that is moving loads around the cell, they actually ran across this very interesting discovery. Is as they were looking at it, it's a, you know again it's kinesin one. Uh, it is a molecule that kind of walks along these microtubules, and so they had taken this molecule out, put it in the lab, built a glass uh, substrate, put a, a microtubule on it and then uh, did measurements of how this molecule walked along. And what they found is as as it used ATP, which is kind of, if, for my understanding, it's the powerhouse, kind of the, the energy or the gasoline of the cell, if you will, that a large fraction of the energy from the ATP ended up being gener- or dissipated as heat. I mean, as much as 80%. And it just struck the colleagues as, or the, the scientists studying this as very odd because they had this sense that things inside the cell ought to function far more efficiently. And, you know, I got a little graphic that kind of shows uh, just what this cell looks like or what this molecule looks like. That's the kinesin molecule, and it walks along this microtubule. And, again, you know, ATP comes in, and it provides... Uh, it converts into the ADP and it provides an energy, and this thing walks along and what 's not shown on this image is that up at the other end there 's a load that it 's carrying, and what 's also not shown in this image is that this is happening in a rather crowded, dense environment and yeah. so what uh, the particular discovery that I was talk, or that i 'm going to talk about is uh, looking at trying to get a more accurate picture of how this molecule works inside the noisy environment of the cell because there are thermal fluctuations going on. And, and there's actually, uh, they, they realize that there's a uh, a more, another kind of noise in there, and it's Levy noise, you know, L-E-V-Y noise. And uh, the way it's described is this kind of random motions characterized by occasional jolts. And so what the this team of researchers did was actually attached a 500- nanometer sized polymer bead to the end of the kinesin molecule. And what that allowed them to do now is shine a focused infrared laser onto the bead. And uh, that laser effectively works like tweezers and grabs onto the bead. And now that they have this optical tweezer, they can mimic the loads and the molecules and the jostling of the environment in which this thing operates, uh, the kinesin molecule operates. And what they found was that when they replicated this uh, this levee motion, this levee noise in there, that the, accelerate, the, the kinesin molecule dramatically accelerated and it became far more efficient. Hmm. And, and I just, you know, as I was reading this article, it just kind of struck me as wow, that is so cool. I mean, just the technology. I mean, you know, think about that: take a 500 nanometer-sized polymer bead, put it on, put it in a molecule, and then grab it with a with a laser, so that you can control mm-hmm. the load experience. I mean, there's just the technology behind that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. but single molecule techniques. It really is. Yeah. But then now you're also able to show that though this thing that looks very efficient, that you I, I don't know whether it was argued as a as a Uh, Bad design in there. Got this molecule in there that's not working very efficiently. But what we found is that when we understood how the molecule worked in the environment in which it operates, it's a highly efficient molecule, very well-designed molecule. And And it actually kind of reminded me of the SR-71 Blackbird. I don't know how familiar you are with planes, but this is one of the planes that I find fascinating because there's at least one of them that recorded a trip from LA to Washington DC, or it may have been going the other direction, but it did it in 56 minutes. Uh, So these planes really haul, but when these planes are out on the runway, they actually leak fuel. Mm. And it's an It's an intentional design feature because what they know is that when they get up and operating at Mach three. Um, everything heats up and it expands and all of those leaks uh, disappear. And In fact, if you made it with no leaks on the ground, in all likelihood it would crack under the intense pressures up Mm -hmm. in the air. So it's designed to have this inefficiency on the ground because that's not where you're using it. That's just this temporary Mm -hmm. transition phase to get it up to where it's operating in its environment. And when it's operating its environment, It's lightning fast, it can outrun missiles, uh, it does high-altitude aerial reconnaissance, and it's just a phenomenal plane, but it looks inefficient on the ground. And that's what it reminded me of here, is that when we looked at this in some artificial environment, it looked highly inefficient, but yet when we look at it in its environment, it operates very elegantly and looks like design and and the question i'll I'll throw a question to you because uh one of the comments that was made in the article was that when they found this 80 percent of the energy was being dissipated as heat they looked at that and said huh that strikes me as odd we expect evolution to have made things to be more efficient
0: yeah
1: and as a creationist i would expect things to be more efficient because i would expect god to have a design behind things Um, But it strikes me as a little bit odd when we have all this junk DNA, quote unquote junk DNA in our molecules, that we have a lot of inefficiency in the amount of information in our DNA. So why would, it just struck me as odd to have this idea that we expect evolution to have done this very efficiently. And I, you know, being as though you play around in the the biological realm more than I, how, how, how does that? Comment strike you.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I want to be careful when I answer this, not to disparage, you know, anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to me at times people that uh, espouse an evolutionary perspective uh, oftentimes speak out of both sides of their mouths. And I'm mm-hmm. not, Again, I'm not trying to be disparaging about this because on one hand, I'll see comments exactly like the one that you, you know, note that's in the article. That we would expect evolution to produce these highly optimal systems, or people that are working in biomimetics. Well, evolution has millions of years to fine tune and, mm-hmm. and explore all this design space and hit upon the best design. So you'll hear those kind of comments. Uh, then, on the other hand, you'll hear people make statements like, We don't expect evolution to produce perfection. We expect Evolution to produce suboptimal designs mm-hmm. that are cobbled together from pre-existing systems mm-hmm. that are far from p- perfection. So you you actually see both kind of statements being made, you know, uh, from people that again espouse that particular framework. And m- my view is that people that are making the v- are making the point that evolution produces suboptimal systems that are really cobbled together. Is really a better description of what you would expect mm-hmm. from the evolutionary process, which is unguided, undirected, historically contingent. You know, using pre-existing systems to cobble together new designs mm-hmm. that that are constrained by the history, not by you know the the elegance of the design, mm-hmm. where those systems are just good enough to survive. So, you know, I would I would. S- make the same point that you make mm-hmm. are making. And that would be, Hey, f- as someone who sees God as being responsible for the fundamental design of life, I would expect mm-hmm. optimization. I would expect elegance. Uh, I wouldn't uh, necessarily think that somebody who holds to an evolutionary perspective would, would uh, expect the same thing.
1: Yeah. And, and I, that, that's kind of what I'm wrestling with is, you know, why do you expect this, this, the system that is ultimately predicated on do i survive to produce if highly efficient and and the one you know something that struck me and kind of gave me a little bit of pause of of you know how how do we say this and uh, you know i agree with your sentiment of you know this is not a pejorative it's like it's just this odd thing but it does strike me that this is a system that is very basic it's like if this doesn't work inside the cell the cell isn't going to function yeah. and it's not so much that evolution is driving towards optimal designs as it is this is a basic function that if it doesn't work it's going to be and and so there's there's an aspect to where the I can talk about designing an SR-71 Blackbird, but really, the only reason I need that is because of war. And I mean, there are other kind of unusual environments that, that necessitate that. And so, you where you see design and that sort of thing that says, "Oh, okay," that points to a creator. But if I uh, do, you know, if if on on more basic day to day things, if I don't have if those things. The the survivability of day to day things drive a little bit more optimal behavior there. So I could see where this is you could expect optimality or or highly high efficiency out of something like this, because if this doesn't work, it has very very dramatic and immediate deleterious effects.
0: That, that, well, and and to just build off your point, you know if you have something that initially emerges. And it's generating 80 percent heat. Mm-hmm. You know it, you're wasting a ton of cellular resources. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have the luxury of going from a really crude, inefficient system evolving towards a highly efficient system, because the cost of, of having that you know, inefficient system at the onset is just way too great.
1: Right. And and you know and I, again the you know the the two analogies that I, I wrestled with in thinking about this and I, and I and I find that this this discovery that there's this in the environment it just functions very well you know again the, the the blackbird just struck me as wow this is kind of a system that may look efficient but it does what it's supposed to do really really well because it accounts for I'm operating an environment where if I if I don't allow for that it's going to fail um you know and, and i've seen that in multiple things in the you know the places where biological liter- or biochemistry shows up in the physics literature um that kind of efficiency of it works well in the environment um but you know your point the other the other point is is you know this is a system that is so fun, fun, foundational that if it doesn't work it just you you miss and and it strikes me that when you talk about uh, dna You know, there's this kind of simultaneously everything's optimized because that's what evolution does. But yet there's all of this purportedly junk DNA in our genome. Uh, You know, and I I think that picture, if I'm I'm understanding in my conversations with you, that picture is kind of changing that we do think the junk DNA actually does carry a lot more function, although there's a big argument about that. But if evolution was really that efficient at getting rid of stuff I don't see any reason why there should be any junk DNA left. It's like that's, mm-hmm. at minimum, it's an extraneous load that doesn't need to be there. If it didn't need to be there, some process would have filtered right. it out, or that's not a good explanation for why this is so efficient. One of the two.
0: Right, Yeah, and that's, that's a really insightful point on your part, Jeff, because when you think about you know a genome harboring vast amounts of nonfunctional DNA, it's extremely expensive for the cell mm-hmm. to replicate DNA, uh, you know. It, it and so the the obvious thing to do would be to to eliminate to streamline genomes, not to to harbor vast amounts of content, mm-hmm. and so or, or, or vast amounts of of sequences that that have no content or no value to the cell. So, you know that that thinking I think is again reasonable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you know, from a bioenergetic standpoint.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, just at the end of the day, I found this discovery fascinating. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the technology of how you do yeah. this. I mean, again, you th- I don't know how you communicate the idea of a 500, nanome- 500 nanometer sized bead that you can control with a beam of light. But I, that's just cool. I mean, you yeah. know, how you slice it? So. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, just something you know when I when I look at at you know this the video, I think it's worth playing the video again if we can pull that off here. Uh, you know, a lot of times I see uh, people, you know, will show some kind of video like this because mm-hmm. this is just an incredibly cool molecule in right. terms of the way it moves. It's just fascinating. It looks like it's a, it's almost you can all easily personify this you know as walking along the, the microtubule, you know, but what's interesting is that the movement of the molecule is driven by something called a brownian ratchet. Mm-hmm. And I I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure you're familiar with brownian ratchets, but people I think are should be aware of brownian motion, right? So the the example would be like a pollen grain that that's dis- dispersed or suspended in water that you're observing under a microscope and occasionally you'll see that pollen grain just dart Mm -hmm. you know and what's happening is the the molecules that are colliding against that pollen grain more often than not are going to come from uniform directions and so Mm -hmm. statistically that there's no net force on that that pollen grain as it's suspended in water but just because of statistical effects occasionally you'll have more collisions on one side of the molecule mm-hmm. than the other, and that will cause it to move.
1: Right. Until well, the- well that, that's what you see. The, I think the place where people have all seen that is if you've ever been in your house looking at the light shining in the window, you'll mm-hmm. see those dust molecules floating around in there. The reason they're moving the way they do is because of the Brownian motion. So okay, it, that's it, another it is great actually ex- something people have seen. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. So another great example. So, so the So the idea here is that uh, in nano systems, you know, people that are trying to build nano systems at a molecular scale, one of the big problems is how do you actually generate controlled movement? Mm-hmm. And and there was this idea of a Brownian ratchet, where you're you're using energy to create directional movement, but that energy is in the form of a barrier that prevents uh, diffusion. Mm-hmm. in 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 in, uh, in certain directions and only allows diffusion in other directions and so by putting in place these energy barriers you can get molecules to directionally move mm-hmm. in in a in you know in, in in a controlled manner in the direction you want them to go and that's essentially what's going on with kinesin it's a, mm-hmm. it's a brownian ratchet you know where you have you know the where the one of the heads binds to the microtubule and then the other one is kind of floating around randomly, but its movement is constrained by the molecule itself. So eventually right. it'll bind, you know, and so the energetics of the binding hmm. are, are what create the, the energy input into the system.
1: So, you, so this isn't, I mean, the way it's portrayed is this, you know, the one that's yellow there, it lifts up and it says, oh, okay, I need to move forward and does that in reality there's a constraint of what it can happen it can't move one way it can only move this and so effectively the br- the random motion drives it up to the next place where it binds yes oh, that's cool i didn't yeah. know that yeah you know, and and
0: then again the binding and debinding are just going to be are going to fluctuate right so, okay so so over time you get you get this directional movement mm. but what what's interesting to me about this is this this interplay between the technology that we would invent you know, at a, at a mm-hmm. nano scale, and then the technology that you see evidenced in, in the way the molecules operate. Right. So there's this interesting interplay between our technology and the technology we see in biochemical systems, you know. And, and, and so when you think about the idea of a Brownian ratchet, I think the idea was proposed in the 50s by a physicist. Okay as a conceptual idea mm-hmm. right and and so it's only been recently implemented in in nanotechnology, but what's fascinating is here we see that technology being exploited by the cell right you know well before anybody even conceived of it and so when we looked at the movement of kinesin prior to the use of brownie and ratchets, nobody would have even understood that it's actually. Again, a a a model for <laughs> the technology that we would
1: use. Well, yeah, and and that that uh, that sort of recognition is fascinating to me because, um, you know, we're increasingly, you know, whether whether this was, you know, we see briney in motion and we design that or not, but we are kind of increasingly looking and seeing, oh, this is what nature does. We can do. I mean that's you know we've been right. talking about flying and so we looked at birds and said can we mimic that motion that, that yeah. there's a recognition that they that nature's doing something we can't and we're trying to up our game if you will so that we can sure. do it and yeah. it's just kind of interesting to see that in reverse where we we generate something that we think is novel and lo and behold yeah. it's already nature's yeah. already figured quote unquote nature has already yeah. figured out how to do it yeah
0: well you know in my book the cell's design I talk about the similarity between the technology in the cell and the technology that we invent, Mm -hmm. you know, and and use that to make a watchmaker argument. But there's kind of variations of the watchmaker argument. Like I made something I I called a watchmaker prediction where, Mm -hmm. you know, I I said, well, look, if this is watchmaker argument is really valid. Then as we invent new technologies, the prediction would be, we should discover that that inside the cell, that technology already exists. And, Mm -hmm. and then likewise, you know, if 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 you know kind of the current converse watchmaker argument that if the designs in biology are really ma- created by god then we would expect that they should serve as a source of inspiration for our technology right, right. so again it's just this interesting interplay between the technology and the cell the technology we invent and then thinking through how can we use that that interplay mm-hmm. to to construct an argument for god so Anyway,
1: yeah. Well, and the one the one last point about that comment that I, I wonder if is true. And yeah, you know, I'm not. I, I try to be pretty careful about ascribing motives, but it, it does seem like, um, you know, when I, as a as a person who believes that God created life and who works on things that are I don't understand at times, and it's like, why is this? I've I've had enough times where I've been working and it's like, oh, okay, that's why it's there that what I thought was stupid turned out to be my lack of understanding of things. And so I would expect that we are going to look at nature and we're gonna find things to be very well designed, that they work the way they do, uh, especially when you account for the fact that these are not built in the lab things, they're designed to work in very noisy, Mm -hmm. what you might even term dangerous or, or hostile environments and yet they work very well. Um, the idea that everything works efficiently and well designed seems to be something that at some level the naturalist is borrowing from a theistic worldview and mm-hmm. and there and there 's a prevalence of you know just the way the West at least has thought over the last hundred years has been very much uh kind of in the judeo christian way of thinking, not that you had to be a Christian to do that, but that 's kind of the ethos of or, or the 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 way we think about it if you will, and so it seems like it all it does kind of seem like this that statement of we expect molecule, biomolecules to be adapted or by evolution to do their job efficiently. Um, if evolution works the way I think, it those molecules do it well enough to survive, and anything beyond that should appear weird. Um, you know, and so you know again. You know, eighty percent inefficiency. You could be argued that's not well enough to survive. But it it seems like that idea of efficiency is something, or efficiency or optimality is something borrowed from Christian or a theistic worldview, rather than part of the worldview. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think that's an excellent point. You know that. Uh, uh, you know, and you know what I also see too is that when you actually see biologists reason consistently with an evolutionary perspective on things, many times when they see designs they don't understand, uh, they are quick to, to view them as being just flawed designs mm-hmm. or are cobbled together or some kind of vestige of an evolutionary history. And, and it's oftentimes much later investigating that system where somebody uh in spite of the paradigm as as opposed to because of the paradigm, mm. actually discovers a rationale for why things are that way. And then suddenly what has been declared to be a bad design suddenly now looks like again it makes sense. Right. You know, and so, you know, I, I see it, you know, the influence actually that going both ways. And it's kind of similar to the point we've been making. It's almost as if you see evolutionary biologists Having really a double mind on mm-hmm. on the nature of biological systems. So. Well,
1: I know you've got a, a discovery related to but different. So <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, there's some interesting points of connection that people will see. I think, uh, and and you know, I love how that you use analogies to help people grasp some some you know. Some sometimes some technically obs- obscure points, mm-hmm. and so hopefully I can do the same thing. But you know, my in, one of the enduring images I have of 2021 is all those cargo ships off the coast of Southern <laughs> right. California, right, waiting to unload their cargo at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And and I, I I've learned that 40 percent of the imports into the United States actually go through those two ports. There's, the two lar- <laughs> two largest ports, so apparently we we import about two point eight trillion dollars worth of goods into the United States, so that means like one point two trillion mm-hmm. dollars worth of stuff goes through those two ports and and you know and people are trying to dissect what went wrong mm-hmm. why you know why was there this backlog you know and because it just created havoc for for our economy. You know, mm-hmm. there are things you couldn't get on store shelves that you would just assume would always be there. It was a little bit disquieting in some respects. Well, you know, part of the 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 assessment is that, well, consumer habits changed very rapidly because of covid, where people were not going out to eat or going to movies or music venues or sports venues. And so mm-hmm. they were taking that disposable income and they were buying stuff with it. Okay. And that created this incredible demand that then caused people to begin to place orders for goods, you know, uh, and and because it happened on large enough scale, you didn't have the capacity at these ports to handle all of the goods that were coming in. But then because of COVID too, you had, you didn't have full crews at the, Mm -hmm. at the, at the ports and, you know, you didn't have the people to, to haul stuff away. And so everything kind of, you know, all at once, it was a perfect mm. storm of not having the capacity at the ports. And then when you up the number of dock workers, well, you still didn't have warehouse space. You didn't have the truck drivers to move things. Mm. And, and so the whole point is that if you don't have a highly efficient, highly integrated system for importing goods into a country, you know, things can unravel and unravel, you know, quickly. And, right. uh, and this this is the same principle that we see when it comes to the cell as well, is that cells have to move things around. You you know, mm-hmm. you have this, your example of kinesin is an example of a, a system moving cargo around inside the cell. But sometimes cells have to import things across borders mm-hmm. inside the cell or, or cell membranes or the cell boundaries. And if that import process isn't working efficiently and effectively, it can create all kinds of problems, just like. Not being able to import goods into mm-hmm. our into you know into the U.S. caused problems for for our economy and probably econ- economies around the world, and this is particularly true when it comes to mitochondria, and these are these tiny bean shaped organelles. This is an, a, an image of a of a mitochondria uh, that uh, serve the the cell as you know uh, in a number of ways. One is that it provides energy for the cell to use. So it's the the, the organelle that's producing most of the ATP inside the cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ATP that powers the movement of kinesin is being produced uh, at, in, you know, in mitochondria. And it also serves as a, a metabolic hub where it, it is essentially generating compounds uh, or at least generating intermediates that are part of pathways that are, need, are needed to make building block mm-hmm. materials. So it's a very important organelle. And a typical cell will have thousands and thousands of these organelles. And if something goes wrong with with the mitochondria biology, it's it's a it's bad news.
1: So, so the cells have many mitochondria, or a cell will have one mitochondria and amongst a whole bunch of other organelles.
0: No, no, no. It'll have thousands and thousands of mitochondria. One cell will. One cell. Will. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, because they're 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 so important. Okay. Right. And but there's a whole set of diseases called Mitochondrial uh, miteo, uh, pathologies, mm-hmm. sorry, um, mitochondrial pathologies that are uh, uh, due to essentially some kind of breakdown in the mitochondria, okay. right. and this usually leads to neurodegenerative disorders. Okay, uh, when that happens, and there's probably 200 or so mitochondrial diseases mm-hmm. that are known. Well. Uh, protein import is really important for mitochondria because there, there's about a thousand different types of proteins inside mitochondria that are carrying out specific functions. Mm-hmm. And of those proteins, many of them will have multiple copies. So there's thousands and thousands of proteins inside mitochondria. of those proteins have to be imported into the the mitochondria. They're actually made in the cell cytoplasm Hmm. and then they have to be imported into the mitochondria. Now, there are about 10% of the proteins in mitochondria that are actually produced in the mitochondria itself. Mitochondria have this little, and you can actually see that in the diagram, this piece of DNA that encodes for some mitochondrial proteins. And so the question would be, well, why aren't all of the proteins encoded in the mitochondria instead of being in the, in, encoded in the nuclear genome and then mm-hmm. you know, made in, you know, in the cytoplasm and imported? It seems like at first glance, it would make more sense for everything to be imported or, or be produced in the mitochondria. Well, it actually turns out, and I won't get into the reason for this, that it's actually energetically more efficient to encode proteins in the nucleus Okay, and then have it made in the cytoplasm and imported into the mitochondria. It's actually a more energetically efficient way of doing it.
1: Okay, if- so so you've got a, a single nucleus that has the coding for a whole lot of these proteins. The cytoplasm, which is kind of presumably spread throughout the nu- throughout the cell takes care of generating all these proteins and then the the, right. the the multiple mitochondria that are within the cell import that in and right. do some function with it that's right. that's the picture right correct? okay
0: right now the process of importing is is complicated because not only do you have to actually target the protein for to go into the mitochondria because there's other proteins that are being made that are going to have other use in the cell so you know there's a, there has to be a mechanism we'll get into that to target the protein to the mitochondria but it's more complicated than that because once you target it to the mitochondria you have to sort it to the right location in the mitochondria and so okay. in that diagram you see that there is an inner and an outer membrane right so some proteins are embedded in the outer membrane some are embedded in the inner membrane some are imbe- some actually exist in co- in the intermembrane space between the two membranes and then some have to go into the lumen or the, the matrix of the mitochondria. So you not only have to get the protein, the right protein to the mitochondria for the import process, it's gotta to go to the right location. Just like you have truck drivers that take the cargo mm-hmm. uh, that is imported and then delivers it to the right warehouses throughout the country.
1: Okay, so part of the problem is there's far more proteins in the cell than what the mitochondria need to use. So you have gotta get the right proteins to the mitochondria. Right but beyond that it's also not just ooh you can uh, you can adhere anywhere or be right. anywhere it's got to be in the right location so do, right. does the mitochondria sort that or does the, the movement through the cell sort that out somehow
0: the the mitoc- well it's a combination of both okay um uh, and and what happens is that proteins that are targeted for the mitochondria have a something called a signal sequence at the at one of the ends, at the N-terminus end. And it's like an address label. It okay. tells the cells machinery, this protein is to go to the mitochondria. Okay. And uh, and then once it gets there, there's this, this is a very simplified diagram where you have-
1: So but before you go on, what's reading the address? Um, I'll, I'll get to that. in okay, a all right, I'll get, that. All right, I'll, I'll get I'll, that. I'll
0: get that. Hold my question then. So. Yeah, and and, it, and I don't think we completely understand, but okay. we do have some glimpses as to how that address label is read. Okay. But so once it gets there, there's a complex called Tom, uh, <laughs> which stands for the translocase of the outer membrane. All right. And so Tom, if 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 that it'll bind that that protein, and if it is to go into the outer membrane, it'll shuffle that protein to another complex called SAM, and I don't remember what SAM stands for. It's like sorting accessory machinery or something like that. And then uh, if it's going to go into the lumen, Tom will pass that protein to another uh, uh, protein complex in the inner membrane called the translocase of the inner (laughs) membrane or TIM. But it's actually, there's different TIMs. There's TIM23. If it is to go into the inner membrane, then TIM, there's a TIM-22 that will take it into the inner membrane. Mm-hmm. If it is to go into the inner membrane space, it's not shown here. There's another complex called OX-A uh, or TIM-22. Both of those can work can get it into the inner membrane space. Sometimes a protein will have a second sequence called a stop sequence, Mm -hmm. that once it gets into the inner membrane space will block it from going into the lumen and it'll (coughs) reside in the inner membrane space. So there are multiple pathways (coughs) that help sort proteins as they go into the mitochondria.
1: And at the end of the day, this is all just effectively chemical bindings and an attractiveness to things. So presumably, this molecule comes in, uh, you know, whatever the protein is, and it interacts with the Tom, and it either binds well or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's something else. And if it does, right? Then Tom. It has this imagery of Tom saying, hmm, oh, this is where it goes, but it's really yep. just these are the chemical bindings that are going on at yep. the end of the day. Yes,
0: okay. so here's a here's a little bit more detail now. So, um, uh, and we're just gonna focus on the left-hand side of this diagram. So here you see the protein. <laughs> you
1: do realize the left-hand side is the complicated side. <laughs>
0: yeah, unfortunately. And, and so you can see at the where the NH3+, that's the N-terminus end, there is the, uh, there's the, uh, uh, let's see here, that that's where the signal sequence is. But in the signal sequence, there is something that targets it to the matrix. There's another place where it targ- targets to the inner membrane space. And so here we can see TOM, and the TOM is actually a massive protein complex. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of subunits that are part of TOM. Many of them are not shown there, but TOM-20 recognizes that, that signal sequence okay so when it binds the signal sequence it will then c- kind of shuffle it into a channel in tom 40 and that channel actually is somewhat contiguous with the tem twenty three. so it moves right through that the two channels into the into the matrix and then there are enzymes called proteases that'll cleave away that that signal sequence mm-hmm. so if in some instances that protein will just fold and play its role in the matrix. And and by the way, this is actually a Brownian ratchet. That, okay. Because there are these proteins called chaperones that are not shown here that will bind the protein as it comes through the channel in Tom mm-hmm. and kind of pull it through. Right. And so it's it's like a, a, a brownian ratchet where you're preventing the back diffusion right. of the protein. But it's all diffusion that's taking it through the channels coupled with again chaperones binding and Preventing the back diffusion from taking place.
1: So, this is, this strikes me as an incredibly complex system because, you know, you said, oh, it's Tom, but Tom turns out to be, I mean, there's at least three members of Tom here. Oh, yeah, and there's a lot more that I'm assuming they didn't choose those randomly numbers, that there's probably close to 40. That's why we get up to 40. So, are, are, is like Tom always sequentially this way, or Tom randomly? Just or you know, could the, the ordering and the distribution be different, or is that kind of for Tom to function properly? It it's always this way, kind of like your yep. supply chain. There's always the cargo ships and the dock, and then yep. the trucks and the warehouse, and then yep. yep. yeah, okay. It's
0: it's not. I mean, it's a, a a complex of protein subunits that bind together and then kind of stick together within okay. the within the membrane. So there's like a region in the membrane where you have different TOM complexes.
1: And so presumably the TOM on the top and the TIM on the bottom, there's not only the complex up here that has to work, but it has to align properly with the stuff in the inner cell.
0: Yeah, yes, exactly right. And then again, you know, as we talked about, there are, we're not seeing it in this diagram, but there's again, TIM and OXA, Mm -hmm. which would, if there is a sequence that indicates it should go in the inner membrane, there's a TIM-22 uh, that will get it into the membrane. Uh, OXA will get it into the membrane. They they operate with slightly different mechanisms. Both of them can also import it into the inner membrane space. Uh, and then SAM's not shown here as well in that diagram. And then on the right, um, it, sometimes you'll have a stop sequence That once it's imported, it just simply won't go through Mm TIM-23 of the matrix. It stays there. So again, the whole point here is that there there is a a complexity to this process, Mm -hmm. right, where it's not just simply targeting it to the mitochondria for import, but then there's a whole elaborate set of mechanisms that are working Mm -hmm. collaboratively to get the proteins in the right spot. Now this brings us to the new discovery.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, Which, that's not the no, okay. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah, so this is setting the stage. So uh it turns out that there is a a protein that uh it's called DYRK1A. All right, so that's the name of the protein and and we we have learned that mutations to the gene that encode that protein cause are part of the ideology of things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Okay. But nobody quite understood why that that was the mm-hmm. case. Well, it turns out, long story short, this particular protein is called a kinase, which means it attaches phosphate groups to uh, to other proteins. Okay, and this DYRK1A protein uh, actually will add and re- add phosphates to a protein called Tom70, which is actually part of that the Mm -hmm. TOM complex. But TOM70 isn't tightly associated with it. So you have the TOM core, where all Mm. those subunits are closely bound, and then TOM70 is kind of sliding around, moving around. When it's phosphorylated, TOM70 will form a tight association with the TOM core. And when that happens, it opens up the gate, allowing for protein import, right? And if it's dephosphorylated, TOM70 dissociates from the TOM core and protein import stops. And so this discovery.
1: So so this is, so the TOM, without TOM70 binding, the rest of the TOM complex really doesn't allow much into the, so so even though it's not associated, or it's not bound to, it is critical to the functioning of it, it sounds like.
0: Right, so people thought it was just once you had TOM20 binding the Mm -hmm. signal sequence, it was an immediate import okay. passively into the channel, uh, and now we know that there's actually regulating the a process regulating the import. Mm-hmm. So the analogy would be, you know, hey, if I'm importing particular goods into the United States, let's say lawnmowers, mowers, right. you know, and there's a an overabundance of lawn mowers, you know, in 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 you know in the country then I'm gonna stop the the process of importing them Mm -hmm. until we sell some of those lawnmowers and and there's actually a a need. And that's the same idea is that the mitochondria needs to respond to different things happening in the cell, the energy status, other Mm -hmm. metabolic stressors in the cell. And so sometimes the mitochondria needs proteins, other times it doesn't. And so this is a mechanism that regulates the import into the cell but the whole idea here is that we now have a, 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 a an expanded understanding of the process mm-hmm. of protein import and it's just becoming even more complex as we learn more about it but what's interesting is that there's a there's an analogy between what we see here and again what what, what you what happens when you're importing goods into the country right mm-hmm. first of all you've got to have a port that port has to be equipped to receive Mm-hmm. You know uh, ships you have to have me a means to uh, unload the ships You got to p- have a place to store that cargo a place then to get that cargo to Warehouses and then a means to deliver those that cargo to other warehouses. So it's a it's a set of you know f- complex operations that have to be precisely Integrated with mm-hmm. one another for that process to work and in the same way what we're looking at here. Is a collection of complex processes. You right. might say they're irreducibly complex processes, mm-hmm. where the, all those processes have to be simultaneously integrated
1: right.
0: to one another. And so, and, and again, you've got a a Brownian ratchet mechanism undergirding this. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a another analogy between the way that we construct systems and the way that biochemical systems are constructed. So mm-hmm. there's a a theme here right, yeah. that's emerging is that there's again this analogy between how we would you know put in place very complex processes that are highly integrated in what we see inside the cell so this to me again is a pointer to uh to the work of a creator it's not just that this is an incredibly complex mm-hmm. process but there's also an elegance and a sophistication and an ingenuity to it but on top of that it there it's an integrated complexity which again, is analogous to the way we would design systems. So if Mm -hmm. we think about design being not just simply creating devices, but also creating systems, we we again see a a place where we can make another type of watchmaker
1: argument. Well, and that's what struck me is like, there's this, uh, not only is it a, you know, do we see, we build systems like that. And so, okay, we're seeing a system like that but you know kind of going back to my comment that this is all driven by chemical bindings you know that there in all of our systems there's there's two, there's two aspects one there's the per, there's there's the person or group of people who designed the system but then there's there's always a mind is the system working properly and what needs to go on this system just quote unquote by the laws of physics and how atoms attract one another is self-regulating. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the the building the system that works is incredible in the first place. I've done enough stuff trying to make things work independent of whatever might come at them. That is really hard. And this, you know, you know your your, your ship analogy. There's somebody out there saying, "Wait a second, we've got too many lawnmowers." Whereas if I get what the the Tom seventy is, at least part of its function is to say. I know what's going on out here and this is not the time to do it but it's not cognitive it's built into the physics if you will and yeah. that is incredible.
0: Well and and so the the DY you know RK1A protein mm-hmm. is 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 you know kind of what is alerting mm-hmm. with with by phosphorylating or dephosphorylating the TOM70 and I'm sure it's integrated into another metabolic network right. where it's receiving signals that are giving it information about energy status of the cell or, you know, uh, again, other metabolic demands. So, you know, it, it's, yeah, this, this, again, this incredibly elaborate system where we're just presupposing mechanisms mm-hmm. that in and of themselves are absolutely remarkable when you think about it.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, just given my, you know, thinking about, you know, just the, how well carbon performs as a molecule to build long chain molecules, how well, Uh, water works as a solvent and everything. It's, you know, at the end of the day, if all of those chemical bindings you're talking about are predicated on things that align with carbon and oxygen and water doing what it's supposed to, which, you know, so so in some sense, this argument is tying that design functionality back to the intricacies of the laws of physics. Uh, It's not just kind of, well, biology searched around and found what worked. It's actually fundamentally tied to the laws of physics, which we don't get a chance to try multiple ones of those. It is what yeah. it is, if you will. I, this is yep. pretty fascinating. <laughs> it,
0: it, it is. Okay, one other point. I know we're probably going a little bit long, but, but one other point, and then we'll bring it to a close real quickly here. and And, and that is that this insight, to me, actually undermines the the evolutionary model for the origin of eukaryotic cells. The cells we're talking about are called eukaryotic cells or complex cells. Mm-hmm. They're the types of cells that we learn about in biology with a nucleus and all these organelles. Right. But one of the outstanding questions in evolutionary biology is how do these types of cells evolve?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the model is uh, called the endosymbiont hypothesis and it's kind of illustrated here. And the idea is that you had this mother cell, if you will, that was essentially engulfing smaller bacteria. right? And those bacteria form these permanent endosymbiotic relationships with the mother cell where they would provide a benefit to the mother cell and the mother cell would provide a benefit to them. Mm-hmm. But over time, they underwent these individual, independent microorganisms underwent kind of a de-evolution right. and became organelles that served the the overall mm-hmm. collective's needs. And, and the, the organelle that is emblematic of the endosymbiont hypothesis would be mitochondria. And so this is a, an, 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 a, a, a diagram that kind of envisions how maybe that evolutionary process might happen, where you have some kind of mother cell, again, that picks up um, basically a, a, a bacteria that's a gram-negative alpha proteobacteria that essentially gives up its... Parts of its genes Mm -hmm. that you know it just jettisons genes from its genome that are picked up by the nuclear gene, and then over time, this uh, mitochondria emerges and its modern day role inside the cell. So Mm -hmm. that's that's the the evolutionary model in in a nutshell. Now there's a lot of evidence that people will point to that seem to to give credibility to this idea. Mm -hmm. Mitochondria about the same size as alpha proteobacteria, double membranes. You know, it has a, a piece of DNA, you know, in, inside mm-hmm. the mitochondria that's a vestige of
1: this evolutionary history. So, so it's not a ludicrous idea. I mean, there's – it's it's a plausible idea. Or at least it, there's some appearances that make it seem yeah. reasonable. Yeah.
0: Yes, and I, I would agree. I would agree. And yet when you start peeling away some of the layers mm-hmm. and start asking the questions, well, what would it take – for this to actually happen, right now you're looking at a process like protein import, because now what you're having to say is that you know 90% of this endosymbionts genes were taken up by the nucleus. Mm-hmm. And they happen to be the just right 90, right. You know genes, or or 90% of those genes, the just right 900 genes, where the other ones that were retained were the just right, right ones that need to be retained inside the mitochondria. All of these genes now had to somehow acquire a signal sequence mm-hmm. that would be appended to the to the genetic material, and that signal sequence was j- just right to be able to be recognized by mm-hmm. Tom, right. which, by the way, had to evolve from scratch. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, Tim had to evolve, Sam and and Oxa, and, and right. all of these had to evolve at the just right time. The chaperones, the proteases, and they all had to themselves be targeted. For import mm-hmm. into the mitochondria so all it's so you you have all these incredibly just right things that have to happen practically simultaneously mm-hmm. for for protein import to take place you know and so it it's again going back to the analogy of of importing goods into the country, if you ran a trucking company, you were not going to build a warehouse by the beach mm-hmm. you know and then hire drivers to to carry goods from that warehouse near the beach if it's not near a port, mm-hmm. right? You know, the only reason to do that would be if there's actually a port where there is, a, 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 you know, a, a means to unload cargo from the ship, right. right? And so every aspect of that process of importing, it only makes sense to establish it if all the other uh, systems are being established at the same time. So when you're dealing with a, a system that displays integrative complexity, mm-hmm. It all has to come together at once, right? You know, for it to to function, and you can't get things happening in isolation. You know, it, it just you you would go bankrupt if you right. if you you know put in a you know a, a crane to unload cargo from a ship if there weren't ships coming to the to that to that port. So,
1: well, yeah, and I mean, you know, I I look at that in terms of analogies because or you know in terms of you know, when we develop ports, I mean, you know, people that first sailed ships is like, oh, here's a good port because it's good for the ship or whatever. And eventually you're going to start build a road out of there or, you know, build a pathway to, well, this isn't the greatest place to have a house. So we're going to move it, you know, a mile inland or whatever. So you're going to start doing that. Um, So kind of there's that primitive level. But when you start talking about the types of supply chains you're talking about, It seems that's beyond just the, okay, we're going to take advantage of the environment. There's now this planning and orchestration. And the fact that we're seeing things that look like planning and orchestration, you know, you don't get from Plymouth Rock to L.A. Port without very intentional behavior. It strikes me that you don't get from the engulfed thing to our modern cell without orchestrated behavior i mean it,
0: yeah well and, and again you know let's you know run through a, a scenario suppose i mean there's you know it's not surprising that you might uh, an or, you know an endosymbiont might give up some of its genes mm-hmm. that makes that makes sense and it's not surprising that some of those genes may be taken up by the nucleus right i, I you know or by by the yeah. nuclear genome but now this is where the problem arises because if that mitochondria or that pre-mitochondria needs that protein, unless this entire assembly is in place, there's no way it's going to get that protein. Mm-hmm. And so it's not going to be able to survive long enough for this whole, this entire integrative system to emerge, right? So you re- eventually reach a point where, yeah, evolution can explain maybe some of the steps, but in but mm-hmm. while you're waiting for everything else to come together, the, you, that 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 right. Yeah. P- that pre-mitochondria is not going to survive, and it's not going to be of any use to the cell. Mm-hmm. So there's there's selective pressure that you would think that would in fact prevent this. Now, this rec- this idea that how do you explain the evolution of protein import into into mitochondria as being problematic to the evolutionary paradigm is not just simply something I concocted. Right. <laughs> Uh, But there's actually people that are evolutionary biologists that have identified that problem. Mm -hmm. One of them is a guy named Franklin Harold, who uh, uh, in his famous book on the cell, classic work on the cell, he he talks about the evolutionary origin of eukaryotic cells. And he says, the origin of the machinery for protein import is more complicated. And this is more complicated than how do you explain ATP transport, Mm -hmm. uh, the emergence of ATP transporters, and is subject to much debate. Most of the transferred genes continue to support mitochondrial functions, having somehow acquired the targeting sequences that allow their protein products to be recognized by Tom and Tim and imported into the organelle. so the evolutionary model is this is complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a complicated problem, right. and somehow this all happened yeah. right? this, I mean and, and this is not to be again belittling. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of Franklin Harold, who I have enormous amount of respect for, uh, but rather it's simply to say that nobody really knows how something like this could actually evolve. Yeah. And so there's just this faith like commitment that mm-hmm. somehow evolution did it, and it's just maybe it's an impenetrable scientific mystery. But when you start to probe or speculate how it might have happened, it's very difficult to envision a workable pathway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, a workable sequence of events. And given again that this is an integrative, com- integratively complex system, that's similar to how we would design comparable systems, to me it makes more sense to, to think of, you know, the origin of mitochondria and really the origin of eukaryotic cells as the work of a creator. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, so. Well, and it, you know, it just it it seems like you know when the endosymbiont hypothesis was put forward it's like okay yeah there it's it's reasonable there are some appearances it looks like this might be but there's a whole lot of things that we assumed were going to get resolved as we started looking into that and it seems like the more we know the more it's like okay initially it looks reasonable but there's this comp- not not just complexity but uh, efficiency, intelligence, design behind it that make it really hard to con- c- to continue thinking that way. That yeah. the advancing discoveries really do fit more comfortably in a creationist scenario than in a, a naturalistic scenario. Yeah,
0: I think so. Well, I think we've 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 done about everything we can do today. <laughs> so hopefully, people aren't overwhelmed with the the biochemistry. But mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the, the the details are where you really see mm-hmm. the. The powerful evidence for design. Jeff, thank you so much. I enjoyed uh, our conversation today. Hopefully people watching have enjoyed it as well. Uh, remember uh, to subscribe to uh, the Reasons to Believe channel. Set a reminder so that you get alerted to when new episodes of Star Cells, and God Uh, are are posted. And then last but not least, don't forget to follow us on social media, rtb underscore official, and check out our website, reasons.org. Until next time, uh, remember, the more that we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe.